Mars with Matt and Hillary, and I'm making jokes. It's hilarious. Um, I'm Matt. I'm Hillary. And um, this is a special edition of es- of Escape from Mars or Maroon on <laughs> Escaping the Marooning of Mars. Um, and we have a spe- and we're going to be talking about the two <laughs> Escape from movies by John Carpenter. Uh, that's right. We're talking. Is that about a good job? of introducing the show that that was great it makes perfect sense this is one of our special movie episodes uh while we're like switching gears and getting ready to do our next ksr novel uh and so we're uh talking about we had such a good time talking about they live with our friend bill hutchison we decided to talk about two more John Carpenter movies the most uh movies that I associate particularly Escape from New York uh deeply with Madhouski. Um, so, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so we decided to talk about Escape from New York and Escape from LA. And uh, Bill is here with us again. Hi, Bill. It is very nice to be back. It's very nice to talk to the two of you as always. And uh, I'm glad this one is being, this conversation is being recorded for posterity and future generations. We're glad to welcome Bill. I'm going to pl- future generations will play this on their red dotted remote CD disc. <laughs> Podcast code 667. I can't, uh, you know, I can't wait. The mini disc, the mini disc is really good. I think it's going to be the future, you know? It was the future for just such a brief, I mean, not even that mini disc, but it was like, what were they? There were all those like little devices back then that oh, um, yeah. were going to be the future. And then just MP3 just leaped leapfrogged over all of them yeah yeah it's funny that it didn't occur to people more quickly that the future was going to be something that was going to be like harder to see and much more difficult to make copies of right yeah (laughs) and harder to break too like it's like (laughs) you know you can't you have to hack into the the cloud there's no hackers in this movie right except for that one guy yeah no there's no hackers um there are satellites, though, in, in Escape from L.A. Um, yeah, what are we going to talk about? We don't have an agenda. These are two movies. Okay, Escape from New York, 1981. Escape from L.A., 1995 or 96. 96, I think. And they're both basically the same movie. Like, beat for beat. And they even, like, you know, like, L.A. will, like, reference New York in very, like, Mm-hmm. in sideways and, and sort of like uh, uh, breaking the fourth wall kind of ways in a, in a certain way. Um, and I think that's kind of interesting about them. But like, I always associate, I don't know why you associate these two movies with me, especially. Maybe we can get into that. In <laughs> yeah, bonus, come on. Uh, Escape from New York is the emblematic Housky movie. Oh, right. Everybody, I forgot. Everybody who knows you knows this and a large portion of people who don't know you know this. I forgot that I went as Snake Plissken for Halloween one time. I forgot. I'm sorry. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Complete with eye patch. Um, (laughs) Of course. 
Of course. But I think of like these two movies, especially Escape from New York, but like I think that in the I think of them in context of like the the Hollywood of the 1980s um, and like the various science fiction dystopias that were happening there and sort of different ways to think about, you know, the nightmare of the future during the Reagan era, which was like, so there's like the John Carpenter version that's like Escape from New York and then, mm -hmm. and they live and, and Escape from LA is a kind of a different thing, which I think is kind yeah. of interesting. But then there's like Verhoeven with like Robocop Yep. and um, later Starship Troopers, which is 90s, and then James Cameron. Those are like, for me, like the three, I don't know if I'm missing any. Those are like the three sort of big sort of Hollywood dystopian violent genres or like visions of the future that I kind of think about when I think about the 80s. Yeah, and I think something I was thinking about um, uh, Escape from New York is something interesting about John Carpenter is of those of those guys, those big directors. Um, you know, just if you compare um, Escape from New York to to Terminator in terms of um, the way that it looks and feels, and like what it like um, what it thinks sort of like what it thinks about what storytelling is like you know movie storytelling is like you know john carpenter is like the least committed to anything that's like anything naturalistic you know um and that i i was really struck i've i've watched escape from new york a couple of times but this time i was so struck by it's so bare like mm. Almost all of, I mean, when you get into New York, the set, the sets like are a little bit denser looking, but, but like most of it is very, very gestural, you know, mm -hmm. um, you'll like see like a wall that has like a sign on it that just is very clearly like a sign that somebody painted. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, it, so it's just like not, uh, I mean, I think this is always kind of true with John Carpenter. There's just like, there's much more sort of referentiality to movies and movie making and much mm. less interest in like um, the creation of like some kind of plausible world, mm -hmm. right? Uh, although, which, which, you know, I would say like in um, both RoboCop and Terminator as, as other examples, like you get quite a commitment to at least a version of a plausible world in two different in two different modes between those mm -hmm. two movies. Mm -hmm. I was thinking I, I've been watching a lot of the same era De Palma lately because I haven't seen I just it's not some not a filmmaker that I had seen a lot of and I have been it's been amazing watching Carpenter and De Palma together because they, a lot of what you're describing it feels like it's referencing like so much of what you see in, especially in Escape from New York, but more on purpose in Escape from LA, it's as though like the movie's falling apart right on the edges of the mm -hmm. frame. Like you can, if the camera pans a couple more inches, you're going to see like a set carpenter or something. <laughs> so the fact that it's, it's not, it's not, its interest is not necessarily in pushing a plausible world, but it's mm -hmm. always like the world in which we exist. It's never, it's, they're escapist films that you can never escape from uh, because the, the, the materiality of the world in which they are being made is always just right there. You can, you could almost smell Carpenter's stinky cigarette breath right behind <laughs> you, right over your shoulder. 
<laughs> yeah, well, it's not like none of the things in it are. I mean, like the while the while the while they're set in the future, none of the things in it are necessarily that futuristic, or um, or if they are, they're just barely. You know, like they're very realistically mm. into the future, so that like the guns are still firing bullets, not like laser beams or something like that. Um, and and even the things that are used to make them, the props or whatever, are um, pretty current. Like uh, the glider in um, Escape from New York, the submarine in Escape from LA is a little bit more <laughs> is like more out there, but it's also like rendered so much chintzier by the CGI, which is. Yeah both bad and I think like amazing and brilliant. Absolutely, and I yeah. miss that Hilarious. CGI. So it's like so much more better than the fucking Marvel CGI that oh, we yeah, get. Yeah. Like it's so much more interesting and, and, and fun, like in that kind of gestural kind of like almost, almost Brechtian way. Although I don't think that would be really necessarily correct to like associate <laughs> Carpenter with with Brecht that much it's it's the technology is interesting because it all it seems to it seems to suggest that it was there was never a moment in which the technology we see was futuristic it's as though it came into this world obsolete so our escape from mm -hmm. LA what do they call them the remote is that what the handheld device is which really looks like a 1950s tube television remote as much mm -hmm. as anything uh none of it, it the glider like it's all it's all already there's never a moment where it was shiny and new mm -hmm. yeah and in it's so like um uh uh in comparison i feel like to say terminator there's probably a different comparison to robocop but in comparison to terminator or i'm also thinking of aliens which is like a little what when is aliens from 86 87 aliens mm -hmm. is 86 yeah. i think you know, in both in both of those movies, like um, the um, not only are like the guns, the guns play this role of being simultaneously like futuristic and realistic. I mean, I guess in, in uh, Terminator, uh, you know, the Terminator is just going around with like a big fucking shotgun or whatever. Um, but, it, you know, Aliens is super heavy on the like space age weaponry, which all just turns out to be like actual like military hardware, right? Was actually existent military hardware. And the, you know, the, um, for all of the, the shooting in these movies, like Carpenter is just like that sort of like militarized view of, um, uh, or, or really like that kind of like celebration of a certain kind of militarism, um, which I think is something that kind of like Verhoeven kind of does also, but in a, you know, in an ironized European way, <laughs> but that's like completely absent. John Carpenter is just doing something different, you know, um, in a way that makes it, uh, in a way that makes, I think, um, it makes these movies weirder. It makes them funnier. Like they're funny in a different way than, um, you know, even like a Verhoeven film is funny. Um, and it makes it harder to kind of get a purchase on, or it, it means that they have a very different purchase on the present of their making than those other like SF action blockbusters do. Mm -hmm. I think I was thinking about this um, earlier today about sort of ascribing a kind of 
political ideology or political message to either to escape from New York and escape from LA um, or to John Carpenter through those movies. And I think um, at the base of what animates Carpenter is not necessarily like in they live like is maybe his most sort of, I don't know, directly political film in a certain way. Right. Um, and, and even that, like when we discussed it, it was not, it's hard to like, other than like a contempt for Ronald Reagan and basic like Republicans, it's hard to say what he, what his, um, where he falls or whatever. And then the two escape from escape movies, like, and in the rest of his movies too, I think it's less a coherent politics than a um, pleasure in making movies. And like, th that's like something that Hollywood and American popular cinema really rewards is just like, making an entertaining movie regardless of what the politics are because as as the films end like the end of the films um Pliskin, snake Pliskin, who's you know these are really character studies of snake Pliskin. <laughs> um you know what animate what makes snake tick is the is the animating question and then the end of both movies is just like an overriding like nihilism yeah in yeah. relation to whatever political, um, whatever like wider political struggles are going on that he gets kind of um, roped into participating within. I In this rewatch of Escape from LA and watching them both together for the first time ever, I think the, the way that the the way that the Peruvian revolution, the way the revolutionaries show up in Escape from LA, uh, it feels like there's 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 at least a glancing suggestion of a politics in Escape from New York, uh, because the Escape from New York takes those revolutionaries seriously as re revolutionaries, but our Peruvian I can't remember what the what his group is called uh, the Shining Path. It's the Shining Path. It's, shining so it's Path. Like that's an right. An actual right. right. That's one a of the real Peruvian revolutionary <laughs> group. Right. But but yes. Right. So that's even weirder. Like we get a real revolutionary group that is more cartoonish that it's it, it's underscored how little how little interest there is not just in a politics but of anything that has like a possibility of institutionalization or systematizing anything which does seem like that seems like very john carpenter guy making his movies outside of a functional hollywood system but also just like if there is a politics, it is that sort of nihilistic anarchic politics of a joy, like joy and uh, sort of like fuck you style apathy. But I would say too that like to anchor it in an American context where um, it's a it's a in in a way it's a great um, manifestation of the American ideology where it's like there's all these outside forces that are angry at us for some reason. And we don't really, and like we render them cartoonishly uh, or buffoonishly or whatever, because we don't really understand what's going on. So in that way, there's a kind of hyper parody that he's involved in. Like obviously John Carpenter, the man understands that there's all these like, you know, like third world movements and like anti-capitalist movements all over the world. But John Carpenter, the filmmaker, the American filmmaker who wants to make an entertaining movie, they get rendered in these kind of like, over the top, um, ridiculous, you know, parodies. So that like Utopia, the president's daughter in Escape from LA, she falls under the spell of Cuervo Jones because of, uh, 
because she started listening to podcasts and watching his yeah. YouTube channel. <laughs> yeah. Right. Which is <laughs> like showing that in 1996 is like amazing because it's like the internet is barely even a thing back, uh, back then. But, um, but that like, it somehow like renders it in a distinctly American way where it's like, Americans are just idiots about these kinds of things. They don't actually understand. And so there are these like assembled forces just outside off the coast of America. It plays into like the American paranoia paranoia right. that Honduras is going to invade us for some, yeah. somehow. Um, uh, while at the same time acknowledging that like, actually there are sort of real forces out there that, but, but that, in a distinctly American way, we just like refuse to understand them or acknowledge them like with any level of seriousness. I mean, that seems like, you know, in both movies, which I probably will talk about this more later, but I mean, both movies like draw on these kind of like, you know, obviously tropes of the Western, right? And that, um, which then is is the way to sort of like license certain things that happen in them. I mean, I to me, like, uh, Escape from LA is, I think, sort of like politically weirder to me because, um, I mean, one, I think by the end, like, you know, that the end is him like lighting up a lucky strike. I mean, which is like American both, spirit, an American, an American spirit. spirit, sorry, uh, which is uh, both like, you know, a joke and also like is also just this kind of like fundamental, like it sums up the kind of libertarianism of the kind of like individualist libertarianism, which I guess is always libertarianism um, of the movie. And that has a lot to do with the way in which it like, you know, makes the American, the American political system is represented by one, these kind of like military fascists, Michelle Forbes, love, always love to see Michelle, so Michelle Forbes. Um, and Stacey Keach also <laughs> <laughs> Stacey Cage. Um, and then and then, you know, like essentially a, a religious fascist, a Christian fascist president, uh, who is Cliff Robertson, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, um, but you know, so we get this kind of like weird, I think that this is kind of like typical of a lot of like sort of 90s dystopias that decide that like, oh, the dystopian thing is gonna be rather than like facing like the actual you know, any of the actual sort of like dystopian potentials of like 90s politics, you know, the decimation of the welfare state, blah, blah, blah. Um, like instead they decide that like religious fundamentalism, you know, remains like the, as in the 80s, like remains the kind of like, this is the ultimate threat, right? And the real, the real reason it's a threat is because like it's puritanical, like you can't have meat and it impinges and or women. <laughs> And it, right, you know, so, so it's this kind of like libertarian, you know, the, they're like, you know, snake becomes like the libertarian hero who wants, who doesn't give a fuck if the electricity's out, he's going to smoke his cigarettes and presumably like go like kill some Have kind of deer or something like that. Yeah. Um, but like the, but escape from New York, I mean, it, uh, escape from New York is like, so it's still in that mode of that kind of like, you know, 70s mode of like thinking about like the garbage strike in New York, right? You know, this is the American city disaster. Whereas the urban world, I think this has a lot to do with what you were saying about like um, the kind of like the, the way in which Escape from LA pretends to revolve around the idea of this basically like pan-Latino revolution, um, you know, kind of just like... <laughs> 
<laughs> an incoherent and amazing idea, right? Um, which is clearly, a, you know, very 90s, like urban thing, right? Because it's all about gangs. And since it's LA, it's like Latino gangs or whatever. Um, but Escape from New York is much more that like, uh, oh, the city has gone to shit, right? Um, you know, urban dispossession, um, bankruptcy. And what that makes happen is just like punks and subcultures everywhere. And like those people are kind of dangerous because they're like crazy and out of their minds. Um, but also there's a sense of like, um, you know, uh, yeah, you know, so it's like, um, uh, I, I mean, and I suppose like the, the, um, uh, Isaac Hayes is the Duke gives us like the sort of racial component. I mean, both movies like have a like at best complicated relationship to to race. I, I would well, say. that's again why I would why I why I kind of like want to rescue Carpenter from it because it's so much a Hollywood like almost over the top vision of the parodic American a parodic version of the American paranoia around race and um, ethnicity and stuff like. It, yeah, I mean, certainly problematic relationship to race, but also one that is in context of everything else, like sort of, yeah, ridiculous, kind of hilarious. Like yeah, the way yeah. that, the way that mm -hmm. Isaac Hayes um, just moves and like is treated in the film. Like that fact that he's a Duke. So you have this like, um, this like remnant of like feudal, feudal aristocratic, uh top down <laughs> sort of gangsterism uh it, you know compared to the president um uh versus uh the che guevara type figure that cuervo jones is the uh, which again is like an insane pastiche of these this uh paranoid figure uh in the american like psyche um and the ultimate corruption that I think he's suggesting that's inerrant in any in any sort of like revolutionary enterprise when we've got chandeliers on the <laughs> Cadillacs and it, 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 I don't it, it's interesting to see it, it feels as though Carpenter has <laughs> Carpenter sees no it, it's not it's hard for me to this to make that distinction that I think you're talking about Matt where or part of what he's using is a pre-existing vocabulary of tropes and ideas because they, he, they're mobilized. This is not a, a thought, maybe this is more of a question. They're, they're mobilized, but they're also like, he finds no purchase. Part of what he's saying is I find no purchase in this. There's no Donald Pleasance. We've got a British American president and we've got uh, a hopeless revolution that, it, is never going to pass until some like strange uh, 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 heist of this disc, it, it, this meticulous plan can actually be put into place. I, I don't. I oh, don't so quite. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, 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 I don't quite know where the question is there, but I don't. I, I feel like in watching both of these, I think some of Snake's resignation feels like it's just coming off of carpenter himself yeah well i mean i think that yeah as, as far as you were saying sort of like he finds no purchase in either of, in, 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 in any of these kinds of ideologies which is like he reverts to this individualistic libertarianism or whatever um that you know like that um 
whatever capitalism or America mm -hmm. is in the state of like perpetual decay. And the thing that is um, going to that striving to replace it is just also just not up to the task because it's in, it's itself like hyper violent or incoherent or whatever. Um, like for instance, so yeah, in, in New York, the plane is hijacked by like the people's revolutionary party or something like that. Yeah. I, I mean, it passes by so quickly because they crash the plane and their goal was to like hijack the Hartford summit, which apparently probably is some kind of salt negotiation or whatever. So it's like, again, continuing from a kind of, um, you know, legacy of uh, of the 70s and into the 80s of kind of trying to normalize relations with the Soviet Union regarding like nuclear weapons, presumably, who knows. Um, and that that the goal of their their goal was to like, and I, evidently the tape that is being, you know, the, the MacGuffin that's the tape in New York has some probably some kind of like secret on it that would end the Hartford negotiations in the favor of the, you know, America, uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. But then when the workers party is out of the way, you just have this prison Island of Manhattan where it's literally just a jungle. Like people don't even, I mean, like it's one thing to lock everyone up in Manhattan and like erect a wall around it. It's another thing for those people to just simply wait for government handouts to be landed by a helicopter rather than like turn Central Park into a farm or like just develop some kind of like life way of their own, like that, that, you know, finally free of like the boot of whatever, like they could actually, uh, you know, comprise a polis, right? Like, so in that way, like he buys into the idea that, um, these people are criminals and that they don't have any kind of like moral or um, uh, uh, communal feeling whatsoever, except for from the, this kind of like, um, you know, charismatic violent leader of the Duke or something like that. Right. So, but I think also that that's in service again, of going back to like John Carpenter's bigger project of just making entertaining movies in an American context in a way. And, and that, that again, is also a, like a legacy of the 70s and the kind of depoliticization that went on during that whole period after the kind of like the long 60s kind of political awakening or whatever. He's part of that new Hollywood generation with Spielberg and Lucas and those guys that don't, that just like movies. I was, so I, two things I was just thinking while you were talking. I mean, one, I think it's interesting. I mean, you know, you can see why Escape from L.A. moves away from the Cold War framing of the first movie. Um, uh, but it's interesting that the first movie gives Snake um, like more of a backstory. Right. In the second movie, I mean, although it'd be easy to just like ignore this. <laughs> this is completely ignorable because he could just be a fancy criminal. He could just be an outlaw. Right. And somebody in escape from LA calls him like a gunslinger, um, mm -hmm. which is really the best description of him. You know, he's like a random outlaw. Um, and we have to talk about his clothes at some point, but we'll, we can get there. But, um, but in the first movie, we learned that he was a special forces guy mm -hmm. and he's famous for having done something that involved flying a glider at the Battle of Leningrad, I think is what we hear repeatedly. So we have the kind of like invocation of this, of like, you know, this is of an alternate historical trajectory, right? And because the movie is set like, um, 
we get the first the first time when we first hear about like what's happening in the U.S. It's like in 1985 or something like that, and then it's set in like 96 or something like that, right? So it's like this very near future um, uh, to the moment of its release, obviously. But we get this kind of like hyperbolic like story, in which it's clear that like you know. Um, if nuclear war didn't actually happen, the United States like actually invaded the Soviet Union. And at those negotiations in Hartford, of all places, um, uh, it's the USSR, the United States and China all together. Right. So we don't know if we're supposed to think that there was like um, a Soviet Chinese alliance, uh, you know, um, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, we have more of that framing. And it, I, I would be kind of interested. I think it would be. I'm sure somebody has done this already, but like, it would be kind of interesting to see like a, even just like a visual genealogy of like the special forces guy in US movies, because mm. like, I feel like when you say that now, like we can all picture like what the Navy SEALs are supposed to look like in every, you know, Zero Dark Thirty and every like other movie that's like that with like, you know, bearded, you know, big, big guys, bearded, like, um, look like they've seen it all. Like they always have a kafia on for reasons that are completely inexplicable to me. Maybe they hand them out at Navy SEALs training or something. Um, but then like Snake, who is supposed to be a special forces guy, right, is wearing like um, extraordinary, like, I guess Snake pants patterned leggings that also have pockets in them of some kind um and you know like kind of a motorcycle jacket but it's also kind of a fancy jacket and it's brown brown leather and he does have the beard and the extraordinary hair but just like visual and then visually like you know um the idea that like you could reference like special forces as a backstory for someone who would be snake Pliskin, and that's like so completely transformed to the role that those the special forces play in like movies now mm, yeah uh, um so that's one that is something that i think is very interesting and like kind of hilarious and his his sort of backstory and the idea that like you know the movie is just so uninterested in a really great way in like the kind of moral dilemma of now how he has to work for the man. Like in both cases, like he's forced to work for the man. Um, and he really just like, doesn't give a shit. I mean, it's like, that is not a more, you know, like he has these moments at the end where he's like, I'm not going to really do what you wanted me to do. I'm going to rip the tape up, you know? Uh, but like, whatever that th these are not movies about moral dilemmas in any, in any, kind of way right and then the other thing that I would like to talk about that I think is really interesting in the movies is the way in which um is the idea of this is the city prison concept and the way that that gets worked out in both of them that both of them become one through like natural disaster and the other through you know accidents of of um geography both of them are island city prisons um and I'm just like, I think that this is a really kind of interesting, it's an interesting idea. Like this, Matt, is attached to what you were saying about the way in which like, there is a way in which in both movies, it's kind of like, yeah, these people just are criminals, you know, despite the fact that the second one sort of plays up the injustice of their incarceration more. But it's like an interesting, to me, it's like a kind of fascinating um there's the specificity of that is like really interesting. It's like really interesting kind of like dystopian 
um, topos or whatever, it plays out interestingly here. And it's particularly interesting because in both movies, the idea of the city as prison is related to like sort of contemporary fantasies slash anxieties about urban, about urban centers, about city life. Um, but also I think in some ways, anxieties about prisons too are, mm. are kind of like present, although probably in a more, in a, like more sort of like suppressed uh, way anyway I think that that like it's just like such a like wild and the, in both movies we get it we get a lot of like visual specification of this is how the island is cut off from everything else this is the wall this is what's outside the wall this is what's on the other side we see nothing about the rest of the country right you know um, in the second movie snake has been busted in Cleveland like that's right. one of the few other places that we hear about you know so Cleveland not a prison city um, but but anyway, like I'm really interested in that kind of like that idea in both of these movies, I think is kind of fascinating. Mm -hmm. It's a small addition, but I was thinking about the sort of like you can be executed before you go to the island joke <laughs> that it <laughs> comes before both of them. Yeah. But I think like the 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 inversion of the interminable prison sentence, which has at the end of it uh, a possible execution in contemporary American prison systems uh that yeah that inversion is a uh, it, it does its work of suggesting that this prison is going to be more terrifying but it also is like this weird ambiguous um it's unclear to me if the if the idea here is like uh why not just save the trouble and make it a uh save the trouble for the the institution and go ahead and execute criminals on the front end or is this something about like a uh, relief from the possibility of uh, interminable and unfair prison sentences that are you just counting down the days until you either die or are killed? Yeah, I mean, it's they're definitely like the part of that uh, that I don't know if it's uniquely American or if it's just modern or or capitalist, the idea of like, well, let's just give them an island and then they can go do all the yeah. drugs they want to do and they can have sex with whoever they want. And they, you know, put all the sinners and all the gay people and all the heroin addicts on an island and just get them away from all the good people or whatever, that kind of fantasy. Um, yeah, that's, um, I didn't think of them. I mean, it's funny because despite the fact that they're called escape from, I didn't think of them as like prison escape films, but they, they really are, but it is, you know, they're prisons without the, without even the pretense of rehabilitation or normal right. life. It's like, um, which is, you know, um, uh, and, uh, a kind of in, in a, a, a good insight into the, like America's, you know, post whatever 60s post 70s relationship to prisons where it's just throw them up and lock away the key mm -hmm. the three strikes rule um all of this all of that kind of um um ideology and it's interesting to see it like i think that there's something i don't i don't quite i don't have like a take on this but i think it's interesting to see like um the sort of intersection between you know, the idea of, um, like the idea of the prison as, um, just, you know, this like chaotic gang ridden and yet potentially revolutionary, like, you know, Attica or whatever 
space um, and the idea of the city, right, um, you know, paradigmatically in the like 70s and into the 80s, New York, but like there's a version of this kind of like in in RoboCop about Detroit too. The city as this like, you know, gang-ridden, um, uh, you know, essentially a war zone, but at the same time, you know, a place, a place where like, you know, a politics or something might like, um, might emerge. Right. I mean, it is really interesting to me. Uh, I was like sort of, um, uh, for whatever reason, thinking about, um, what is the, why can I never remember what this movie is called the Will Smith last man movie. Oh, uh, I am legend. No, I am legend. Uh, it, it's it, is it I am legend or is it? Yeah. Did they give it a different title? Yeah. No, it's I I am legend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, the remake of the one with Vincent Price. Um, we're and like the Omega Man with uh, Charlton. Heston. Oh, no, Omega Man. Yeah, yes, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, you know, in in the Will Smith version, like a, a chunk of that movie is about how he does this like life building, right? I, I mean, I know it's a different scenario, but this is in some ways, like I think a kind of overlapping way of thinking about what a city space is. He, you know, so he's like grow, he's like growing food and like, you know, hangs out at the Met and you know, these kinds of things. And obviously there's no space for that in um, Escape from New York, but there is uh, but we do have like the, we do have like the one kind of like life building piece in Escape from New York that we see is Ernest Borgnine and the music, the musical theater where because there are no women in this world. And this is a big difference between the two movies. Right. They're like a couple of women who in Escape from New York. But it's just it's not just that there aren't um women playing major roles it's like it does seem to be a world that is almost entirely men mm -hmm. um and so like the like the musical theater is this kind of like vaudeville like drag drag show that ernest borgnine also like heavily camping it up <laughs> so so hilarious so that whole reference to like one to like you know sort of like the swing era with like the tapes that he plays in his in his car, but also to this, like, you know, circa 1900, like vaudeville, like, I, I don't know, like, so we do see this, like, well, here are a bunch of people who clearly have gotten things while in prison enough together that they've like created like a highly specified subculture, you know, but then there are also like the punks who are just, who live underground, who are just like crazy ferals, you know, the, the and then crazies, they're all right. Pardon? They're called the, they call them the, the crazies. The crazies, right. Yeah. Um, and then like, and then there's like the Duke and his people who are just like a classic, like, um, you know, a classic kind of like life form uh, in a, in an apocalyptic scenario, which is like, they like to have fights to the death and like do a lot of like random, like shooting of each other. And they barely speak like they're like pre like verbal somehow or something. There's exactly. the one guy who the amazing uh, Romero, I think is his name. The character's name was like the guy who is sort of programmed to say something to Lee Van Cleef. And then like is just he's that's an amazing actor and performance. Um, so it's an in, so it's like this interesting like. Um, so, so there, I mean, and that's, that's something that seems like in that movie, like, uh, 
we see the way in which this is still like an urban space and not properly like a prison space because they are like creating these like there is some sense of like people like living in a particular kind of way even if like at the edges everything just falls apart and like you have to hide in the like uh in the chock full of nuts in order Hmm. to not be (laughs) right but like all of that is like so incidental to like the story of the movie and like what it is that i mean he really just like walks through that that whole theater scene meets Ernest Borgnine and then like heads on out. Like it just like could not matter less. Yeah. And the parallel to that in LA is when he gets kidnapped by the um, plastic surgeon. (laughs) Bruce Campbell. I was so excited to see him. And Valerie Galino or Valeria Galina or whatever her name is. She's a terrific sort of, you know, had a, moment in the 90s or whatever was in hot the hot shots movies as well uh which i remember her from mostly but there's a great speech that she gives is like we're the ones who are free they're the ones who are in prison out there here you can be whatever you want you can make your make your own way like yeah it's not easy but like we're free and then she gets shot in the chest and dies without saying another word um which is amazing too it's like um yeah yeah, and I guess I guess the other the other sort of like the other culture we see in Escape from LA are the surfers, right? Peter, yeah, Peter Fonda. Amazing and- casting in these films, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, I'm just like, there's something I think like um, I think there's something to be fought or gotten at about like. Uh, that you know you could have kind of like a serious thought about about like this as a sort of piece of a kind of like imagination about incarceration mm-hmm. um you know I, I mean and even even maybe like the growth of like you know the sort of like prison industrial complex mm-hmm. like um the idea that it would just like it would become worth it to just like you know give over an entire city to um uh, give over an entire city to a prison rather than like sending people to like separate prisons, you know? It, I was thinking about that, especially with that uh, scene. I I don't know how I, I, I never had really quite got the fact that brains function is to run the oil well, provide like a large part of his job is to run the oil well in New York and provide petroleum In the New York refinery. Public Library. <laughs> That's yeah. right. So like, and it was precisely that. It was that, it was the the marriage of the refinery and him living in the library. And the fact that that in this prison, we can imagine like, you don't, you don't have to sustain the, a, a, a prison system or a prison industry that in fact could just sustain itself and produce its own energy needs. And in some ways it's like an extension of the license plate factory and the indentured yeah. servitude of, of prison workers. Like okay, let's uh, let's just go full Australia, and if you want to have gas and refineries, then you can build them. Uh, but you are in prison, and that's the way it is. And also, we learn in Escape from New York that they they have retrofitted cars to run on steam. That's we one do? of the things. That's one of the things that uh, that right. Snake is told before he goes in. And so then it's actually that's weird right. that they're also like. Um, uh, 
yeah. I missed I missed that part about steam. I did yeah. not, despite the fact that I finally clocked the oil well, I did not put that up against the fact that, so I wonder if that's an interesting thing, like news does, news is not, the way that world is operating is not being transmitted back to like the functional non-carceral world. It in fact is like, they've gone from steam power to oil power now. I, I, well, maybe I, if I, they... I'm doing a little headcanon there. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe, but though maybe it's only like the Duke and his buddies who have who get to have like gas powered cars and everybody else but everybody else weirdly has come up with like a green a green solution (laughs) well that must be it right that they have um tapped into this oil well which is uh uh obviously dangerous for the you know the continued imprisonment of the duke and his cronies and everyone else on on uh on manhattan prison island i mean Um, that then that actually is kind of interesting, right? Because the second the second movie is about like the big threat that the whatever the remote control device can do is um, turn the electricity off, right? right? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Interesting. Um, the electromagnetic pulse of all the right. satellites right. that Elon Musk put up, evidently. Right. <laughs> uh, who knows what he's got in those in those satellites? Um, Oh, so I was reading um, on the trivia on IMDb, which is not a reliable source, mm-hmm. but one thing it said, because this is answer, this is in uh, response to the question of what else is going on in the rest of the country. Like we have these two, you know, island prison slash de- uh, de- demarcate, debar- embarkation port for being expelled from the country, deported because you're of your, you're a moral criminal. Um, in Escape from LA, which is very funny. Um, and in the kind of trivia, like in the original conception of the of Escape from New York, so there had been this kind of prolonged World War III um, in which um, Snake Plissken had flown the Gulf Fire over Leningrad. Uh, and, but also there was some like um, chemical weapons exchange between the Soviet Union and the Amer- and America so that the middle of the country has been um, hit with like a ton of nerve gas and gradually people are like losing their minds like all over the country in Escape from New York, evidently. So, so it, there, it is kind of a zombie apocalypse. It does feel like a zombie apocalypse somehow because um, it's also really difficult to imagine a world in which the entirety of Manhattan Island is turned into a prison where once you go in, you don't come out. And yet there are still like suburbs and ice cream trucks uh, in like suburban, like St. Louis or something like that. Right. Like, um, like that, that becomes kind of, but that is a really interesting open question of of like, what does the rest of this country uh, look like in these circumstances? And why did we not get escape from Iowa city? Right. Yeah, right, right, right. Because it is this kind of like, um, I mean, so clearly both movies have to be about like the, um, you know, they have to be about like the city with capital letters, right? They can't just be about any city. Um, Yeah, I'm still kind of like hung up on the idea of them as islands. But then, Matt, when you were just saying that, that made me think, right, so in Escape from L.A., actually, like it's less an analog to um, a prison 
and more an analog to the kind of detention facilities that flourish at the border, right? You right. know, so so in some ways, it's actually just like that um, island off the coast of Australia where they keep um, migrants, and you are never able to like get off. Get mm, off. Mm-hmm. It's not funny. I don't know why I laughed. Uh, people are just like stuck there in this like continual limbo because in escape from LA, like in theory, people could be leaving the country. Cause like he asks her like, why don't you just go? And that's, and that's when she says, Oh, mm-hmm. because um, you can be freer here than anywhere else. Right. right. Um, yeah. Which has something to do with her telling the story of having been like a Muslim in South Dakota or yes, something like that. Right. Yeah. This like inexplicable, like just dropping, dropping this in. Um, well, that's a moral crime in this world. Right, being, right. being a Muslim, probably anywhere, but especially in North or South Dakota, wherever she said she was from. Um, but like the Island too, like the idea of the Island getting back to that. Um, and you kind of alluded to this before, but um, there's like this, the fantasy, like, I mean, of, I think it is, I don't know if it's a distinctively American fantasy, but it definitely has to do with America as being a continental nation, like from sea to shining sea and like all the contiguous 48 states. Like if there's an island offshore, you that's somehow not us and you can banish people to that yeah. space, which like plays into the kind of, in, in Escape from New York, it plays into the kind of anti-urban uh, sentiment that um, had, no doubt arisen, especially in the seventies that New York, especially was this place of, you know, um, decay, just urban, civil, economic, moral decay. And what if, wouldn't it be great if we could just like kick them out of the union or something like that, like good old fashioned American values, which I'm sure John Carpenter doesn't actually share. So it's like another way that he plays into it. And LA, the same, the same attitude from the heartland. It's like, wouldn't it be great if we could just banish those, all those hippie, those like transvestite, transsexual, trans everything, transgressive hippies in LA and just like kick them out of the country Then we could have really God's country. Um, But then also like in that kind of, you know, sick utopian promise of banishing people to an island off the coast, you immediately create the possibility where those people in that island could themselves develop their own politics, which could then be a threat to, which, you know, could like kind of solidify or crystallize the threat to like the, the God-fearing law and order vision of America that you wanted to preserve in the first place. Um, which is kind of interesting too, um, because it become by 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 rendering something an island that's separate, you make it kind of a both and situation, yeah. like that kind of um, it's neither it's neither nor or it's it it is and it isn't um, part of America, and that kind of um, protean or hybrid form is really sort of presents a kind of danger space of danger or something like that which snake doesn't participate in at all he's not interested in it as as the kind of pure individual who is also i mean it's you know again like thinking about snake is like he's a is he's a useful idiot in many ways for empire (laughs) 
uh, or for the American state in these in these films, even though he has no other choice but to do what they tell him to do because he is under the impression that he is going to die um, automatically if he doesn't, which is funny in LA when he, it turns out he's been given uh, the coronavirus. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I thought that. I thought that too. I thought that too. Yeah, it's interesting then that in both. I mean, I think that thing about the, um, uh, you know, I guess that there's, um, there's one sort of version of this kind of story in which like, the dictatorial regime like makes the colony right. You know, the island colony, the penal colony of whatever kind. Um, which then, because it essentially repeats the dictatorial regime, right, is able to like under undermine it, you know. Um, so like that's actually like you know like that's like the plot of the Hunger Games, right? Is that like the you know, despite the fact that they've isolated people and then created this weird like sort of centralized freak show, like in their very isolation, um, they're able to like band together to like do something i never saw the end of those movies so i don't i don't know what but you know whatever they're, they're going to take on like the apparatus of the state um uh you know um but in both of these movies we get the like the initiatory event so there is an initiatory event in both of them that we don't see which is snake plissken getting arrested for doing something right, right. and we and again like we don't really know like in Escape from LA in some kind of like gunfight with Pam Greer who betrays him in some way, but she ends up there first. Um, uh, um, Long before he does, because she's like in charge of the whole yeah, exactly. underground or something. Exactly. Very confusing, confusing chronology. But then the, the one that we do see in both of them is like a plane hijacking. Right. So that that's interesting also, because like, I think that like some of the ways in which, um, you know, again, like both movies like do this kind of like, and this is not, um, this doesn't seem like unprecedented to me. I just think it's kind of interesting that like we get the like um, urban terror overlaid onto like, you know, anxiety about the prison overlaid onto like anxiety about terrorism, right? I mean, in the first movie, the woman hijacking the plane seems highly intentional, although I think we're also supposed to read her as like sort of like Symbionese Liberation Army mm -hmm. type, right? So she's also like a retro type. I mean, this is something I feel like is very like, we talked about this with They Live, and I feel like this is kind of a John Carpenter thing is this like weird play with like... Um, like the residual or the retro in ways that are both like, are both funny, but also are very strange. Like, you know, these kind of like signs of the past show up in ways that are, um, uh, yeah, just like dis disconcerting and, and complicated. Um, and then in the second movie, it's the president's daughter Utopia, played by um, Rayanne from um, My So Called Life, um, which I spent the whole movie thinking about. And she also she seems like more, you know, she seems a little bit less like she has a clear political program. And indeed, we learn basically she just has like a, a crush on the the like pseudo Che Guevara, who she's met in a virtual reality world. <laughs> it's basically look, LA Escape from LA is like, what if Trump were a real evangelical Christian? Christian and Ivanka mm. fell under the spell of Bernie in his like <laughs> online chat. <laughs> <laughs> 
or like maybe like Maduro or uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who's exactly. that other guy? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. She's been like seduced by Hugo Chavez. By Hugo Chavez, yeah. but in a virtual reality world. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and you know, like she is so like a, she's such a like funny figure. She seems kind of like slightly hapless, but in both cases, it's like a woman on an airplane, like. Uh, right, hijacks the plane, sets this whole thing in motion. I mean, the movies are identical. That one of the best things about watching them together is like they're it is just the same movie, and therefore the variations become like weirder and more yeah. hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's interesting, right? Because the kind of like there's this sort of like motive cause from the outside. Um, you know, and I think like the second movie is much clearer that there is supposed to be some kind of revolution brewing within. Um, that then again, in like a weird like retro way, is also like coming in good part from Cuba, from an incoherent account of like politics in like Latin America, South America, and then also Cuba. The Cubans are coming. Mm -hmm. um, so again, this kind of and she is, you know, like there's a little bit something about how she's styled throughout that looks like a she looks a little 60s, you know, like mm. um uh she's almost got a Jackie O outfit on when she yeah. when, when she, she hijacks the plane. Yes, yeah. before she has to wear the like hot pants and bra That's top right. that she has to wear. Right. Before she goes from Jackie O to go go. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, I think that that's like an interest. There's a kind of like, um, so both of them have some like thing about like left wing politics in them, you know, that like, um, uh, yeah, whatever that exists is this kind of like threatening presence within the world or is like also is like some kind of disruption, right? While presumably at the same time as this is going on, Snake is being arrested in like, you know, a shootout with a sheriff in a one horse town, basically, you know, the, yeah, like he's, uh, in the first one, he's like arrested for trying to rob the federal reserve bank. Um, and the second one, yeah, we don't really know why, what he was doing in, in Cleveland to get him arrested, but there's in addition to the inciting, uh, incident, it's it's a coincidence of inciting incidents so that he's arrested at the same time there's this hostage situation which is like a perfect hollywood thing like there's no pretense made to like explain how these two things could possibly have happened at the same time 16 years apart and everybody knows about everybody knows the story of what happened in 1997 in uh in 2012 of the respective films right everybody knows the story everybody knows who snake plissken is he's yeah. already like a world famous gunslinger in both films they all thought he was dead in uh new york they all um thought some people thought he was going to be taller in los angeles mm -hmm. right um and i think that the um and that's like a fun that's just kind of a you know that's a hollywood those are hollywood tropes that's like make that's movie making from carpenter's perspective that's like when he says all my movies are westerns it's like that's just a thing that mm. everybody knows who john wayne is already before he even right. arrives on <laughs> right. the scene right um uh and um just one other thing i don't know if it's necessarily connected but the special forces aspect of him like so he's this nihilist right he's this like guy who doesn't believe in any of these things anymore but at some point he maybe believed enough to at least join the army or that was his only option or something like that right um but now he doesn't anymore and 
81 is when Escape from New York comes out. And so it's very much a kind of a post-Vietnam Green Beret type burnout thing. But it's, it precedes Rambo, actually. It precedes First yeah. Blood. And it precedes, obviously, like Lethal Weapon with Mel Gibson as the Vietnam burnout who then, right, right, you know... Right reproduces whatever as a, as an LA as an LAPD uh cop right so those that's a kind of an interesting thing too where it's a it's a snake pliskin in that kind of legacy of like ex special forces who um is still sort of wrestling with that legacy which is again which is also a, a kind of a western trope as well like veteran of the civil war um war hero in whatever capacity has to kind of like um can't 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 release himself from the legacy of the violence that he's so good at at doing right um it seems like snake plissken doesn't isn't doesn't have that problematic a relationship with enacting violence just enacting violence for an external authority like he has no problem robbing a bank or being in a shootout or whatever but when someone is ordering him to do it that's when he has a kind of uh he doesn't enjoy it that much but he still just <laughs> does it grudgingly i guess that's interesting. I, I was the 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 fact that the Western in a Western when there's no utopic vision, there's no better world in a Western. Like I in a sort of like good versus evil Western plot, it seems like most of the time what is hoped for is a return to the status quo, to the the balance before, say, the Black Bart rode into town or something like that. And it's interesting to think about that in with snake as this disillusioned character but not only how how the whole world works in la or new york where despite the fact that we've got this you know dystopic slash post-apocalyptic kind of world the hope th there is no hope for a better world the best thing you can hope for is to just like go back to where we like go back across the bridge to manhattan to, to the rest of the world from whence we came or to get everybody out of LA and back into the world. There's no, there's no better world to be had. There's just, uh, yeah, the best you can hope for is the way it was before. Which is this, it, it, yeah, I don't know. It just seems, it, it strikes me more as uh, very tragic. The, the better world, there is a better world in the Western, at least the Western of the immediate post-war period, like the forties through the fifties and, and into the sixties. That, that stops being a thing in um, roughly in the spaghetti Western period. But the better world that's hoped for is the one where law and order reigns without the necessity of violence to back it up. Right. So oh, that law, wow. law and order would be kind of automatized, would be kind of mechanized, would be everybody would be, would recognize each other as kind of um, equal buyers and sellers of goods and labor and stuff like that without having to be um, backed up by the sheriff's bullet or whatever. And in the Western of that period, it's usually, or it's, you know, the, the outsider coming in to impose or restore order on a kind of disordered town where either the sheriff is corrupt or the sheriff is in, 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 incapable of standing up to kind of a corrupt like rancher or mining interest, right? The, the, the outsider comes in, he's excellent at violence. He conducts his violence. He kills the bad guys. And then, in, in kind of creating the order that law and order will reign in, he as a killer of men has to expel himself from the Whoa. good society, right? So that's why Ethan Edwards at the end of The Searchers, he has to leave. He, his racism and his violence 
um, are 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 um, anathema to the incompatible and anathema with the world that he is like guaranteed um, through his through his violent action. So there's like a paradoxical kind of um, action that that expels the kind of um, actant from the final solution, so to speak. Um, <laughs> Obviously, that become that's becomes an untenable fantasy in the wake of the 1960s and in, during the events of the 1960s. That whatever law and order is going to exist is always going to be backed up by the threat of violence, um, at least in a capitalist system that um, that institutions institutionalizes inequality, alienation, and exploitation. So, based on that, how do you make a Western that has a happy ending? I mean, you can't. And so that kind of pushes the vision that of Carpenter, but also like Leone and Peckinpah into the future where into a future that is just inevitably going to be a dystopia if it's going to continue to reproduce the kind of um, social and political structures that um, that uh, make the strongest claim to being good and right and true. Wow, that's so good. And it, it, it just makes so much more exciting Lee Van Cleef as the like yeah. ultimate police federal police commissioner. Yeah, Lee Van Cleef and then and and Kurt Russell who sort of in part modeled his performance on Clint Eastwood from the Dollars trilogy wow. right, films. Right. Perfect. Right. Yeah, great. Yeah, How I mean, great that... is Carpenter man. Wow. He's awesome. Just just so great. Well those 80s up until Escape from LA, probably, or is you know, I mean, Escape from LA, I would defend as a as actually a fun, good movie. But oh, it's a I've it's I've hilarious. already opened up my calendar for the recording we do for In the Mouth of Madness and Prince well, of Darkness. I just bought In the Mouth of Madness on DVD, but I don't. I've never seen, and I've never seen it, and I've never seen Prince of Darkness, so I'm looking forward to those. Yeah. But I did watch Big Trouble in Little China a couple of weeks ago, which is. That is hilarious. That is a ridiculous, uh, ridiculous movie. Um, uh, yeah, we should. Well, we should. We should obviously do that since we're, uh, you know, thinking about. Now we're a Carpenter podcast. Thinking about John Carpenter. I mean, I, you know, like a uh, marooned on ghosts of Mars. <laughs> That's right. Um, I mean, the thing, the escape from L.A. thing that is like uh uh is it's kind of like it's deep commitment so first of all it's called john carpenter's escape from la and when i saw that i realized i'd kind of forgotten that like you know he was like a big enough name at that moment that it like made sense to have to have it be hit, hit his and also it was co-written supposedly by kurt russell which i just like love the idea that i mean because a little bit the impulse of that movie does seem to me to have been kurt russell being like i can still wear that exact same outfit that <laughs> i'm was gonna look the... just as good as i did in the first movie and not that all the in... marker has washed off my belly <laughs> that was in the trivia of um on that is that he tried on the outfit that he wore in in New York and it still fit him, but they decided to change the outfit anyway. I think it's anyway. a very it's a hilarious like um you know uh, um uh yeah the way the way in which these movies like are about his body are just 
it's just like very, very funny to me. And I think that like the technology of being able to make your body look like that has changed a lot by the mid nineties, you know? So it is actually at that point, like possible to be in your, he was like in his mid forties, right? It, it's possible to like be that age and like be sculpted in that particular kind of way in a way that like 20 years before, I think it was harder to like maintain that, right? Um, I find that like a very, very funny part of the movie, but then like the, t- the, the movie like then has to also draw attention to that. Right. Michelle Forbes is like, he looks very, I didn't picture him looking. So she says like retro. retro. <laughs> he has a real Which 20th is- century vibe. Yeah, exactly. Which is also amazing. And then I feel like we can't not talk about how instead of the like battle to the death in the ring, it's just him like playing a, a high a high stakes game of horse. Yeah. <laughs> in the Coliseum. In the Coliseum. And I mean, the whole thing is very like um I feel like the movie's sensibility is like um uh it really it just like fixates on like what is the most what is the most over the top thing that can happen in the in place of the scene in the original movie what is the most like over the top variant on it um you know like it's amazing that nobody rides a skateboard but at least there is a surfing scene you know um which is like a very funny it's like the sense in that movie of like um uh like it's almost claustrophobic the sort of like rep the like parodic repetitions which mm. i think is actually what i mean bill at the beginning you were saying something about brian de palma and like that mm. the, the only aspect of the movie that seems really like a brian de palma movie is that sense of like being freaked out by like a a sort of repetition that's like in a kind of like heightened key and you think like this should be funny, but also I feel like I've seen this somewhere before, like, and, you know, in in De Palma would be like, this is something about like, you know, whatever the psyche. And here it's like, you know, it's just about like the world has become like, you know, we're very close to just like delirious, delirious representation world in that second movie. Yeah. I feel like repetition in De Palma the people experiencing the repetition learn something about that repetition or some, or we at least learn something about the nature of the thing that happened or the nature of repetition or something. And here there's just repetition because there's, could you imagine anything else happening? No. (laughs) The man's name is Snake Plissken for God's sakes. Like this is what he does. He's surfing on boots. He's wearing boots. Yeah. And he's on a surfboard. And he's on a surfboard with Peter Fonda. With Peter Fonda. And Peter Fonda's Jeep with an extra surfboard is parked behind them where the tidal wave comes right through. Yeah. And they don't get hit by the Jeep somehow. I mean, I it's, and then he, ju- I mean, it's a beautiful scene. It's just a it's beautiful amazing. scene where it's the amazing. wave is going as fast as Steve Buscemi's car. And he is able to jump onto the back of Steve Buscemi's car from the surfboard after high-fiving Peter Fonda. I mean, it's, that's, that's cinema. That's the yeah, movies. It's amazing. It's there's really... no skateboarding because there's so much surfing and hang gliding. You can't fit it in. I know hang gliding. Well, and also Okay, the weirdest part of that movie is like what it is that we are supposed to make of the Pam Greer character. Right. But I, you know, like I would say that like it walks a very, I mean, does it walk a line? It probably just is kind of a transphobic sequence. But then also because it's Pam Greer and she's just like, you know, 
whatever charismatic and convincing there is a little a little way but like why it would be that the like you know next to last action scene is set up by him encountering the old buddy who betrayed him who is now a woman who he wants to who has been there again this whole temporal problem she's been there for a very long time right somehow um in this like you know decadent sort of by the pool set it <laughs> indoor pool wherever it was yeah <laughs> I mean, I mean and, and also she's black too, right? I don't know how proximate Cleve the the incidents happening in Cleveland were to him being arrested though. Like that feel I don't know oh, yeah. if that was what made him get arrested. I can't remember. I mean, they, they may mention it or something, but it felt like to me that the incidents of Cleveland happened beforehand. Uh like I mean, it must have been serious episodes in Snake's past. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I like that too, where they just reference these things that happened in his past. And like, I do kind of like those bits, especially because they're the only moments where you can imagine there's only only moments where Snake has an explicit community. The fact that he's been involved in these, you know, with Brain, he has, he's mad at Brain because Brain left the shootout or whatever it was. And, uh, uh, the yeah the same issue there's just these like there's a lot of attachment he's genuinely hurt that brain left he's genuinely hurt that Pam Greer left so I like the fact that at least at some point in his life he had these like little communities and he was not always this isolate <laughs> well where there's you know like there's honor, honor among thieves or whatever like you right. you skipped out on us uh you know big Mike O'Shea or some whatever he called him like <laughs> Mike O'Shea had a, had a nickname too, like, you know, Mike O'Shea bit the farm or something like that. And Hershey, Hershey, by the way, is Pam Greer's Hershey, character right. name spelled H E R S H E. Yeah. Yes. I, that was the first she time uses, I clocked that with my closed captioning this time. She uses her, she, her pronouns. Her name is Hershey. Really um, just like very, very, very weird. I mean, yeah, but that's also interesting though, because like that idea that I, I had forgotten that also that's his, that's the, his relationship to, uh, to brain. Um, whose real name is Leonard or. Oh, I can't even remember. Something remember. like that. He calls him by his name. Something nerdy that he's like. Yeah. Harold. Brain. Harold. 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 Harold right. Hillman. Not, not a cool name like like Brain. <laughs> um, but then it's interesting if you think that like so his like these scenarios of betrayal right indicate that like honor among thieves you know and that he was part of like a crew of some kind um which does then suggest snake having gone undergone some kind of like transformation right that's a little bit of a different story than i mean so then like you know he was the special forces guy he's like you know shell-shocked traumatized um or just like disillusioned he turns to crime but then he's like running with a group of people you know he has like his heist crew but he gets betrayed right he learned you know? to trust again after being betrayed by his government and then it turns right, out exactly. that even then, yeah the outlaws didn't couldn't uh you know live up to his standard of loyalty exactly and then his eye fell out somewhere along the way right um Lennon i like that Leningrad. It could have been Leningrad. Who knows? Um, I like the character of Maggie too in New in the New York one, who is this yeah. like 
woman that's just given to brain to keep him happy. But then somewhere along the way too, she has developed a kind of some kind of loyalty or, or feeling toward brain so that when brain is killed, she, you know, refuses to run. She like stands up to the Duke and like, you know, to the death, like I will try to kill this man, even if it kills me in revenge for brain being, you know, and whether it's like genuine, like, romantic love or whether it's just a recognition of her a recognition of his and her like mutual status in relation to the duke as expendable like non-human you know non-equals uh that sort of doesn't necessarily matter she's weeping she's crying when she like is shooting at the duke so clearly there's like some deeper deep like feeling that she has that 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 is sparked by brain's death but um that's like a really cool moment. That's like a really cool kind of uh, uh, moment for the Maggie character to have a kind of like redemptive human, courageous kind of uh, last stand type thing. And she also has that great moment, like uh, a bunch of scenes earlier than that when she takes the gun and just like uh, shoots down. I mean, this it's the first time we see oh, her yeah. shooting and she shoots down like 10 people like yeah. without blinking. It's this yeah. just like yeah. great action heroine moment. And that's mm-hmm. that's it. But that just made me think that like, yeah, well, both it's not only that he had like, uh, you know, some kind of crew that he's betrayed by. But in both movies, you see the classic like gathering together of the little yeah. group of outcasts, right? You know, Steve Buscemi. It's a Howard or, Hawks. It's a Howard Hawks type. Yeah, thing. yeah, exactly. And like you know, and they're all in the car together or the helicopter or whatever it was. And in both cases, on the other side, he only comes out with Snake and the representative and either the president or the president's daughter, right? Mm-hmm. Like who, you know, he clearly has more sympathy for, you know, poor, sad utopia than he does for um, the the president wisely. Um, but like in both cases, like he just actually, there's a period at the period, the moment of escape, it's like, he's gonna escape with the mis- with the misfits. The misfits are gonna get out, right? Mm-hmm. And instead it turns out at the end, he has done his job. And like, even mm-hmm. though he destroys, I mean, even though he destroys the tape in the first one, and even though he turns the lights off in the second one, which does look a little bit more like a line of flight for him, like he's going to get out, right? Um, but in both cases, he actually does like what it was that he was forced to do, you know? He, come, maybe he that... comes through, right? And so he yeah. does like reassert some kind of order of the state at the end, you know, even even if he makes a defiant final gesture, and maybe the that's terrifying where... fire that sweeps through that helicopter so unceremoniously and we don't even grieve them. But yeah. he's given the jacket to protect him, right? Yeah, and yeah. somehow Utopia just survived. Well, he kicks Utopia out. But maybe that's what makes him so grumpy um, is that <laughs> despite his best intentions, no matter what he does, he still reinforces the state. Like he he's still... Wow. Yeah. Uh, he's cursed to have his sort of like expertise in violence not result in a new, like in a new utopia or a new um, uh, commune because everybody's forced to die around him. He's like cursed to live and survive and to reinforce the activities of the state. Yeah. Which is so like sad. The end end of Escape from New York where we're down to Donald Pleasance and the Duke just shooting machine guns at each other with 
Kurt Russell suspended between them. In between. Perfect moment. Yeah. With the clock yeah. ticking yeah. as the who, things are about to explode. Whoever wins here, like the, yeah, he's still, he's still done the work that he was sent to do. I mean, and, it's like, oh, I was just going to say the sad part of his story is that you think he's a bad boy, but he's actually a good boy. Yeah. <laughs> and good boys, but good boys never get the girl. They always die in front of, you know, like, no, the, they, the, you know, bad boys, girls love the bad boy. Um, I was going to say that like um, the end of New York of New York is when Hawk is saying to snake, you know, um, captain Hawk, like um, whatever, Lee Van Cleef, you know, we can do some great things together. I've got plans for you or whatever. And he just sort of walk, walks away. Like I'm tired or whatever his last name is uh, or what, whatever his last sort of line is. Um, he doesn't want to be a part of it. Right. Um, even though you could imagine like a whole, you know, um, a team style uh, hour long television show syndicated series of like Hawk and Snake. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh my God. Great, great 80s, 90s TV logo. Wow. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, Locked in eternal combat with each other. The snake bites the hawk that's clutched in its claws. I mean, like the the flag of Mexico, right? Isn't that what it is? Is the it? Hawk. Yeah, well, it's an it's an eagle and a snake. An I think. Eagle yeah. and a snake. Um, I was gonna say too, like one thing that I've been that I like about Snake Pliskin again as a character is that you know you ask you you say you call him Pliskin and he says my name is Snake and you call him Snake and he says call me Pliskin, so he's just a perfect contrarian. Like no matter what, he has an answer for you know, pass me the salt, fuck you. Or like, yeah. here's the pepper, you know, like, yeah. no. There's a pepper in your eye. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, which is a great little character sort of, yeah, uh, detail. Well, we didn't well, talk about Steve Buscemi, Maps to the Stars, Eddie, um, who is kind of like the cabbie character. Yeah. Um, uh, Without and, utility, that's kind of what I loved about Steve Buscemi in this one. Cabby is Cabby like drives people around, whereas Maps to the Stars Eddie is selling you nostalgia for mm. a thing that wasn't that when it was that. Mm. You know, like Maps to the Stars are never really Maps to the Stars, and now none of them live there anymore in the first place. So right, he's right. he's he's really just yeah he's his he has a compounded lack of utility against mm. Ernest Borgnine. Mm -mm. and in fact he like works he betrays snake at, at initially like he the little things shoot into his chest from the dashboard of the car right. <laughs> uh he's, a, he's an equal opportunity betrayer yeah yeah um well uh, and, it, and i feel like his role is also it's a little interesting because supposedly he has the map that can tell you how to navigate through oh, the very right. dangerous Beverly Hills, but the map is like his tour. Mm. And then when he and Snake are in the car together, like inevitably the direction, he'll just be like, oh, it's right over there. Mm -hmm. So like, there's something about like the, this is, this is a difference. I mean, so like, this is, I suppose, like the post-modernity of LA versus the modernity of New York, right? Like in New York, there's like above ground and below ground. And there might be like a secret, like, you know, like vaudeville hall over to one side, but like navigating, isn't that confusing? You know, there might be like a, you know, giant barrier of cars or something, but like, basically like you know how to get around but like la has become because of the earthquake 
but also just obviously because it's LA, it's become completely unnavigable, right? Though there are the sewers that you can go through, like there's a very, like it just has become spatially completely bizarre, you know, like, which I suppose is a little bit like it's post-modernity and it's a little bit because like the car city has been turned into like a walking city, oddly enough, because it's like all kind of like collapsed together. But it means that like you can't navigate through it yourself right he he can't he doesn't can't actually like get himself through beverly hills he has to go like underneath in the sewers and then come come up the other side yeah i like too that the the ticking clock in escape from la is like nine hours or something like that and he has to go so many different places Mm. in in this in southern california within that time and it's um i mean i think it's believable or it's like achievable to do that but it's also in only achievable because there's no traffic anymore right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because there's no commute, I guess. Um, uh, but then, um, yeah, the way that they get to the happy kingdom to um, at the end through the, on the hang gliders um, is very funny too, because it's just, <laughs> the Santa Ana's have to be blowing in a certain way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And I, that guy whose one job, his one line, how he got a speaking line seems amazing. Whose one job is to say, whatever it is, the Santa Ana winds are blowing tonight. Right. <laughs> we panned to him. Nobody said anything except Snake and Pam Greer. <clears throat> how exciting for his family. Um, the Peter Fonda's character's name is Pipeline. Wow. That's all. His outfit is also hilarious. I guess it's supposed to be kind of like a wetsuit, but it's like everybody everybody in uh, Escape from LA is wearing like tight leather pants. And at a certain point, he's like, it starts to rain. He's like acid rain and he puts over his thing and he's got like <laughs> eczema or maybe it's acid rain scars on his forehead or something like that. Like, yeah, uh, the world is just not a good not a good place. And, and um, yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons we were thinking about watching these movies um, is in relation to the, in relation to like the Kim Stanley Robinson novels, which are the the main impetus of the podcast <laughs> and um, how these have a completely different vision of like what the future could possibly be. Um, especially at the end of escape from LA where he like turns out the light on the entire planet and the big the big thing stacy keach the casting in these movies is amazing like the cast is incredible like stacy keach is a first-rate actor if you've ever seen i think it's a movie called fat city from the 70s it's he's incredible um but i think it's fat city um he says like you know if you enter in the world code 666 and hit enter Everything we've worked for for the last 500 years yeah. will be will be eradicated. Go up in smoke, and um, you know he does it. And he says the last line is "Welcome to the human race." Right? He blows out the match. Welcome to the human race. And it's this thing of like, yeah, maybe maybe based on what I'm seeing right now in terms of LA being an island to deport all the moral criminals of the United States. Maybe like the last 500 years hasn't been such a great thing. And we should start, <laughs> we should start from scratch is like his, his attitude there. Um, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, that's sort of like, um, you know, uh, I was thinking about your picture of the Western of like, you know, you you have to make it so that like the law, it can seem to operate by the law and violence only comes in, you know, violent, violence is only like a distant, right, possibility, right? It's, it's like... Uh, um, so domination, domination is over, right? And the rule of law is what is what takes over, and then that can that means that the person who has come in to do the violent imposition of the rule of law themselves has to be expelled. And I was thinking, like that's that's also really interesting because that's like the way, you know that that's part of the sort of like myth of of settler colonialism that is like not a not a is like a kind of ongoing part of the settler state, right? Which is the idea um, uh, that, right, its its founding is somehow a founding of law, right? Um, and that it is maintained, I mean, and this is, you know, like a, a feature probably of states like in general too, it's maintained um, by law and not in fact by violence or coercion or, or domination, right? Um, and so you have to have like, um, you know, there both has to be the idea in the settler state of it like reaching back into some like past moment in time, right? That it has its own history, which is like that 500 years, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, that it has a history that is not simply a history of like people arriving in a place um, and taking it, taking it over through violent means and then continuing to maintain their domination over that place through the ongoingness of those violent means, right? Instead, it has to have a past that's something different, right? Um, it has to exist like through an ongoing kind of law that is like, you know, is a universal law applies to everybody. And it feels like that kind of logic, like, um, you know, uh, like that also like haunts these movies too, you know, like that is like, you know, uh, like um, snake can be put under like the literal like life sentence, right? You have this number of hours to live. Um, and, but then that can be taken away from him, right? Because he is actually like functional for the state and he can kind of like move on. Um, but there's no, I mean, clearly the movie doesn't want to give up, like it's not, you know, like, it's not, like, serious about the future, um, either the future of what will happen after the end of the movie or the future that it's representing, um, which I think is actually quite an interest. This is, again, to, like, go back to what we were talking about at the at the beginning, that, like, um, the sort of comparison to, like, RoboCop, which I think does want to tell you something about the present, but it tells you something about the present also, like, in, in a kind of, like, warning about where we're going. Um, even Terminator, I think, has a certain kind of, like, seriousness about, like, or at least it wants to impart a seriousness about the future that it's, it's like, revealing. And I think these movies, like, in a way that actually makes them quite interesting, are very non-serious about this being the future, you know, and they make certain kinds of gestures toward, like, telling you a story about how we got to the future. But it really, like, that, that doesn't matter at all, right? They really are movies about, like, um, a kind of experience of the present, right? Mm. Um, uh, and also about their own historical present too, I think. Um, mm. Yeah, anyway, which I think is just like, um, uh, 
it makes them like very like generically hard to place. Like, are they, you know, they're kind they're kind of action movies, I guess, you know, um, they're kind of prison movies. They're not really science fiction movies, but they're kind of science, fi- you know, like where, where you sort of like, uh, sort of categorize them in that way, I think is like quite elusive in a way that like is intriguing and like, um, you know, fun to watch. I think it's easier to categorize Escape from New York because it's so much a kind of 70s movie moving into the 80s, uh, like, or it's it's politics or it's kind of like vision of the world is so very much informed by the 70s and deindustrialization and the rising crime and all that stuff. And so it's recognizable as an action movie, as a kind of science fiction movie, as a kind of prison escape movie. But then the Escape from LA is in part because of what the kind what that movie is but also in part because of where hollywood was at the time um it's definitely an action movie but like the kind of recognizable kind of overdeterminations or the kind of like influences are are a little bit harder to place in terms of its um yeah it's kind of its genre specificity or whatever um it's just a much weirder film it's so weird um and that a lot of that has to do with, I don't know what it has to do with. A lot of it has to do with, I think, with like the rudimentary nature of the CGI, the kind of much more brightly lit quality of the film, um, the kind of artificiality of the film, because it is set in LA, in an LA that is always all, always already postmodern and pastiche. Whereas Escape from New York was, I mean, although it's set in New York, it's shot in East St. Louis in a place where it was, was literally like burned, burned out from a massive fire, like four years prior. Um, so that it has a kind of more recognizable authenticity and a more recognizable kind of connection to reality than, than LA does because LA's connection to reality is to a reality that's already super constructed and artificial. Right, right. You move from set piece to set piece in LA. Like it's a crazy quilt of just uh, little happenings that are knit together, almost sketch comedy style. Whereas LA is a very different thing. It's not yeah, set yeah. piece. There's, there's not much in the way of set pieces, really. Right. I mean, in New like York. is In New York, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because also LA is just like really replicating New, New York beat by beat, like, and yeah, I watched them back. But to you back get like time. a movie scene in the in Escape from L.A. Each beat is like, an uh, yeah. Again, not an action movie, but like it's a it's a movie scene, and then yeah. we'll move to the next movie scene. Yeah, I watched them back to back last night, and that was it was wow. like very striking how identical the films were, um, with just like these weird di- these differences that made them weird and interesting, and and yeah. you know, created significance. Um, where would you set a third escape from? Oh, what a question! Movie. This is the question. We will we will conclude this question. Unfor- so, Escape from New York was nineteen eighty was made in nineteen eighty one. Escape from LA was made in nineteen ninety six. By all rights, we should have had a third Escape from movie in two thousand eleven. Um, we didn't, and that's one of the great tragedies of oh. of the financial crisis of two thousand eight, two thousand nine. <laughs> I think. Um, so escape from Texas. Event. Texas has seceded from the rest of the union. Mm. It's not a prison, but it 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 understands itself as uh, this separate foreign nation. And a president goes down in Texas of the remaining forty nine states. Uh, Fifty now that DC has been granted statehood. <laughs> <laughs> 
and Snake's got to go in and, and get them out. He's, he's got to get a cloud server from Texas back <laughs> to the remaining 47 continental states. What? Who's who's the weak um, revolutionary uh, force that's uh, that is that has brought the plane down in this one? Good question. That's yeah. Well, it, maybe it's maybe it's a Cruises, Chuck, Nor Rough Riders. Chuck Norris and the remains of the Texas Rangers. <laughs> oh, interesting. Because <laughs> right. Texas wants to take actually make all of America into Texas. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. I, I was going to say it'd be awesome to just do it in like an extremely nondescript suburb. You know, <laughs> a place like it'd be very funny to have it be a place that it took a lot of ingenuity to imagine how you would wall it off, but also in which from space to space was identical. But then I just thought of um, uh, which is the uh, is it Dawn of the Dead that takes place in a shopping an abandoned shopping mall? Yeah. Right. Um, and then I thought, well, that basically is the movie that I'm imagining. <laughs> yeah. I just watched that yesterday. Just yesterday. Really? It's really good. Yeah. Such an amazing yeah. movie. I watched the new zombie movie and it was so uneven and not enjoyable that I went back and watched that one, which was delightful. It's really, that's a really good movie. Um, I guess I would say, um, I think that the original idea, if they were going to do one, was going to be the moon. And oh, I think that great. would be a good be idea. Yeah. yeah. I think like the, the, the revolutionary group would, I mean, maybe they could be like lunatics or whatever, um, or it could be Very China good. or something like some like Chinese moon, Chinese lunar um, um, union or something like that. Or I feel like very ripe um, for like, uh, a, wow. Wow cats little cat action here uh i feel like very ripe for like uh a radical environmentalist um you know what i mean oh like yeah you could really because the la one is full of like signs of global warming you know um yeah. uh so i feel like it would be actually like not hard to like do sort of like really maximize that although then it'd be very troubling to have it be like funny too <laughs> yeah if you did like escape from the maldives that would like <laughs> not oh have as much potential for humor no, in that wouldn't it, be funny. i feel but escape from the moon with an with an environmentalist kind of like thing that was made in 2011 that could work yeah, that would be cool or it was made in 2011 great. but it would be set in 2027 i think all the settings are like about 15 or 16 years uh, ahead of the right Right. of the dates yeah that movie moon is a little bit escape from the moon if is that we... the one with the one with sam rockwell yeah yeah mm. i haven't seen it but there's we don't get the whole it's it's nice to have the carceral aspect where now the island that everybody's getting sent away to is on another planet yeah yeah i mean the moon has another good feature if you want to like you know, get serious about it, right? Which is like, uh, what do people breathe? And the possibility of like, um, right. you know, withholding, like, which obviously like if, you know, if we ever have like uh, uh, Elon Musk um, 
ventures on the moon, one of the things that will happen is like, you know, Amazon, Amazon warehouses on the moon, like uh, oxygen levels will be lowered right. when people aren't meeting their productivity goals. I Co wish Hagen's was... shutting down the fans again. Exactly. I oh, wait, wait, wait. Exactly. I wish that this was funny, but this is just like, you know, yeah. basically probably actually what happens in Amazon warehouses. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is kind of interesting that in both of these films, neither there's no there's no uh, move to capitalize on these captive human yeah. resources. There's no just no labor system. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. That's like completely opposite what the prison industrial complex is in the first yeah. place. Mm -hmm. Is that there's all these serve you know like it costs ten dollars to make a one minute phone call or whatever all that right. kind of stuff. Right. Like there's no there's no critique or, or even gesture toward uh, acknowledgement of what that is. Cause it's just, it's just playing purely into the fantasy of like expel these criminals from, from the motherland um, once they're out of, out of sight, out of mind. But, um, but yeah. And that's why like Carpenter doesn't Carpenter's films don't necessarily have a coherent politics at all. Like there's no, acknowledgement that even capitalism is sort of a thing right right mm -hmm. right which anyway. i think kind of fits with the libertarianism where like the idea is that like just in any situation people will like um exchange and some people will profit and other people will not you know so mm -hmm. like you kind of don't even have to you don't even have to think about the question about like you don't have to you you can imagine that like the situation of like people like um within capital nonetheless like um simply replicating aspects of it without being like um still like under the grip of capital as obviously mm -hmm. they would be <laughs> all right well this was a lovely conversation guys bill uh, we want thank to thank you so you much for having me back. Being our thank you, John Bill. Carpenter, movie correspondent. I yeah. I couldn't couldn't be happier. Couldn't feel luckier. Oh, uh, uh, anything you want to plug? Uh, I think everybody should tune into uh, the KSR podcast, Marooned on Mars, oh. which uh, drops episodes uh, every time the hosts feel like it. <laughs> every time we feel like it every time it's we true want to. it's true it's just great to be in the room with you where the magic happens oh yeah the chat room in the video chat room in the where chat room Quervo jones <laughs> could right. break in at any time and start to seduce us with its with his like radical politics and throwing doves at the screen <laughs> if only right. next next marooned on mars guest Quervo jones <laughs> um well we will be back in a few weeks yes. with uh, a new season of shows on 2312. 2312. Oh, that's very exciting. That's exciting. I'm very exciting. excited. I've been reading it. I'm, I'm reading it now and I'm loving it. And it's really cool. One of my all time faves. We're going to have a lot to say about it. So we hope all of our listeners join us for that. Yes, please. Yeah. It's going to be awesome. Weeks. And um, you, in the meantime, you can email us at maroonedonmarspodcast at gmail.com and you can tweet us at podcast on Mars. And that's all you can do. Yeah, you can do those things. Oh, and I, I owe um, Max 
listener Max an oh. email. It's on my mind. I just haven't done it yet. Hillary's in charge of the email correspondence. I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to okay. do it. All right, Max, look for it. Look in your inbox and uh, <laughs> everybody else. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. See you in a few weeks. Bye, Thanks everybody. for listening. Bye. Thanks, Bill. Bye. Bye.